Well, it's great to have the choir here to sing to us this morning. Thank you so much. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. Let's hear the Word of God. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn their song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits of God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Well, if you've been following the episodes so far, here in Revelation 14, we arrive at a different place than we've been. In the previous chapters, we've been looking at the way in which conflict begins on planet Earth, a conflict in which we are engaged even just now, constantly. You have been all of your Christian life. <clears throat> you will be till your Christian life ends. But a conflict that will be more focused and more intense the nearer history moves towards the second coming of Christ. But here in chapter 14, our minds are redirected from earth to heaven. In chapter 13, we were confronted with the enemies of the church. Uh, there was uh, the dragon, that ancient serpent called the devil and Satan. There were his agents or instruments, whether it is a political power, the sea beast, or the false prophet, the land beast, or them setting up an image of the beast that kind of represents the glory of the political power and invests it with almost divine-like prestige, inviting something that looks like adoration or subservience from human beings that they ought to be giving to God. In other words, what we've been confronted with in chapter 13 is what Psalm 2 is talking about. The nations rage. The people plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Psalm 2 is the background to so much that's going on in Revelation at this point. But here in chapter 14, we have the antithesis of that picture of satanic hegemony. Here, or there rather, we saw the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free and the slave, and they're carrying the mark, that is, the name of the beast. 
As Austin Farrer, the great Anglican theologian, puts it, there in chapter 13, the wolf in sheep's clothing has built up a vast congregation and signed it with a name of blasphemy. Or as uh, Professor Bockham of Cambridge puts it, these are the principal enemies of God who must be defeated to make way for his kingdom. Now, you and I in our lives have skirmishes with evil powers. We have skirmishes with false teaching in the church. Our denomination is having a skirmish with false teaching even as we speak. And they're reminders to us that we find ourselves in the midst of an invisible war, a cosmic conflict that has been going on ever since the angels rebelled and humans sinned. We've already learned that the beast in chapter 3, verse 12, was allowed in the providence of God to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Yet every one of the beast's victories, every time the beast seems to have overpowered and overcome the church, is in fact a victory of the church and for Christ over the beast and his powers. And how is that victory won? The church wins by resisting through its refusal to compromise and by steadfastly testifying to the truth as it is in Jesus. The church resists not by violence or by protest, but by faithfulness and by testifying to the truth. So that's the background. And now we come to chapter 14. And our focus is on heaven. And as we focus our view on heaven, we're first of all led to see the heavenly Zion. The heavenly Zion. Now, we've noticed several times, as I've said, that what we have here in Revelation 13, 14 is an exposition, really, of the second psalm. That psalm describes the global rebellion of earthly powers and institutions against God and against His Messiah. But it also tells us the divine plan to suppress that revolt. And that's by, through, the Lord's anointed Messiah, who is also the Lord's begotten Son. And so in Psalm 2, God says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And so from, in chapter 14, we transition from the two beasts and their followers to see the Lamb now, the Lamb of God, the anointed Messiah, God's only begotten Son. We see Him now in the midst of His church. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb with 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. Now, what is this Mount Zion? Mount Zion is the heavenly counterpart of the earthly Jerusalem. You might say it is the celestial or heavenly plans or pattern or original 
from which the earthly sacred site was modeled. This is the real city of God that God created in the beginning when he made, and notice the order of things, when he made the heavens and the earth. He made the heavens first, and then he populated the heavens with angels. That came before he made the earth in the heavens. That is a created space for angels and for redeemed men and women, for souls of the departed, to be in the presence of God. This city of God is represented on earth wherever and whenever Christian worship is offered to God through Christ. You see, Christ's people, whether they're in heaven or on earth, are one people. We're never truly separated from the people who have gone before us and been gathered to their fathers. Every time we gather for worship, we gather not only with the angels and the archangels, but also with the host of redeemed believers who are in glory. The writer to the Hebrews reminds us of this. But you have come, he says. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels in festal array, and to the spirits of just men and women made perfect. This room is a buzz this morning. Had you the eyes to see it? It is a buzz with angels who've come here this morning, as we'll see specifically, to listen and to join us in the praising we've been doing and to hear what I'm going to preach from the Scripture. That's precisely why we're here today. The saints on earth and the saints in heaven belong to this city. Here's how Paul describes it in Galatians 4. Jerusalem above, he says, is free, and she is our mother. The church is one church, whether it's in heaven or on earth. And throughout Scripture, this city is our city. Glorious things are spoken of thee, O city of God, says Psalm 89. Psalm 48 says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in his holy mountain, beautiful for elevation, the joy of the whole earth. Or in Psalm 46, There is a river, the streams of which make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. So Zion is the heavenly name of that city of God of which we are citizens, to which we belong. And then invariably, Zion is connected with God's name on the one hand and God's throne on the other. God's name, that is his identity, his nature, and his throne, that is his sovereign rule. And this city is the end time city where God will dwell with his people and provide our eternal security forever and ever. 
And you know, from the very beginning of time, God's people have had that city on their minds. Going right back to the beginning of the story of faith in Abraham, we're told that Abraham was looking forward to a city that had foundations, whose builder and maker was God. We're reminded by the letter to the Hebrews that we here as believers, here we have no lasting city. We seek one that is to come. We learned last week from Daniel, our little excursus into Daniel, that we live here in this world as exiles and strangers. Here we are strangers and sojourners, says the apostle. Exiles of the dispersion, says the apostle Peter. And we belong to that city, that city of which the Lord says, my delight is in her. That city is, which is a city that is not forsaken by God. A city that is called the throne of God, the presence of God. The Lord is there. We are citizens of that city, here and now. Here and now, at this moment, we join the inhabitants of that city. Every time we assemble for worship, we enter into its gates, we are gathered together with the people there. And when we die, when we die, brothers and sisters, we are gathered to our people. That's the language the Old Testament gives us for death. We should use it more frequently than this passing business that we get from spiritism. We are gathered to our people by death. Zion is the place where the faithful gather in safety. As Isaiah says, the Lord of hosts will reign in Mount Zion and will manifest his glory there. The Lord dwells in Zion. So this is where we are today. And in Psalm 2, we read that the only begotten Son of God, the one who is eternally from the Father, God of God, light of light, is also the human Messiah of David's line. As the human Messiah, he enters the gates, he ascends the holy hill, and he sits on the throne as the God-man, the Theandropos. Though he never left that throne as God in his divine nature, no, he never left that throne, even when he was incarnate in the womb of Mary, he was on the throne of glory as God. He never left that. But as the God-man, by his obedient life, by his death, by his resurrection, he earned as man the right to sit, as man on the throne of God. The early Christians in the book of Acts, they understood that psalm too, as a Christological psalm. They talked about the way in which it was against their Christ that both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, in other words, the nations of Psalm 1 verse 1, include now the Jews as one of the nations that is in rebellion against God and his Christ. It's both as the divine Son and as the human Messiah, Psalm 2 teaches us, that Jesus came he came as a prophet, a priest, and a king. He came as a prophet to tell us the word of God. He came as a priest to offer 
the supreme sin offering with himself as the sacrificial victim. That's what it means when he's described here as the lamb. He is the sin offering, the lamb who will be slain. As John the Baptist pointed out, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In his messianic role as king, he triumphs over all of his enemies. He triumphs over them precisely as the Lamb of God, as the one who is sacrificed. He triumphs over them in his resurrection. The Father says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And so we come back to chapter 14. There on Zion's hill he stands And his people are around him. Back in chapter 13, we read of a fake Messiah, a fake lamb. One that looked like a lamb, but spoke like the dragon, Satan. We we saw in chapter 13 the frenetic activity of Satan and his instruments as they try to establish his authority, Satan's authority in the world. But there's no frenetic activity here in chapter 14. Here is the Lamb standing. His people are with him. There's no need for froth and bubble and trouble and strife. The Lamb standing on his throne on Mount Zion and his people around him. Since Zion is where God reigns, The Lamb's position there shows him to be the only true claimant to the throne of the cosmos. The throne of the cosmos is described in Revelation as the throne of God and the Lamb. That is, a singular throne with a singular subject, God and the Lamb, on that throne. Well, here, Psalm 2 is recalled to mind again with the mention of the Lamb and His Father, Psalm 2 is what introduces us to the idea of God as the Father of the Eternal Son, the one who is the God-man. But look who is with the Lamb here. Look who is with Christ here. 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. If you've been following so far, you'll remember in the last episode we had in chapter 13, we were hearing about the name of the beast written on the right hand and on the forehead. I said they're not a barcode, nor are they a chip that's installed. None of that nonsense. This is the number of the name, 666, the number of man. The number of humanity, humanity that never gets beyond itself, humanity that never breaks out of its bubble, never gets away from the shackles of its createdness, that fails again and again and again to make it to godlike status. 144,000. We've heard this number before. It was introduced to us in chapter 7. It, doesn't, it, isn't, it does not mark a number of ethnic Jews at the end of the age. 
Nor, nor is it a remnant of the church. Rather, it is a number which plays off the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the Lamb that bring both testaments together in one church, whether it's before Christ or after Christ. One church. Saved the same way. Before Christ, by believing in His coming. After Christ, by believing in His coming, looking backwards. One church. Justified by faith. The number is definite. Do you notice that? It's definite. But like all numbers, like everything in the book of Revelation, it's a symbol. It's a symbol of what? Of completeness, of fullness. It's the number of God's elect. So are there only 144,000 of God's elect? The Jehovah's Witness that comes to your door will tell you that that's all there are who are going to be in heaven. But the book of Revelation is a book of symbols. You go back to chapter 7 and you find this happening. You find John hears the number of God's elect. And then he goes to look at them. And he tells us that when he looks at God's elect in glory before the throne of God, there was a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb. In other words, God knows every one of those whom He has chosen. They are numbered by Him in His mind. They are His. He has put His name upon them. He has put his seal upon them. What is the seal? The seal is the Holy Spirit. We have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we take possession of it one day. To be sealed by the Spirit is to be protected, authenticated, designated as belonging to the Father and the Son. In Revelation 14, it is to be named, notice, to have the name of the Father and the Son written on our foreheads. Not a stamp, certainly not a chip. The divine name marks our ownership. We are owned by Him. It means the imparting of the mind of God and the enabling to live for God. To have the number with the divine name denotes the number of God's elect on earth at any given time. Because the Lamb is present with His church on earth, the church militant, that is the church still in active service, you and I here have communion with the saints in glory. So there's a heavenly, heavenly city, Zion, And then there's a heavenly chorus or a heavenly song. It goes on to say this, I I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the living creatures and before the elders. Once again, what John hears interprets what John sees. We we saw this phenomenon before in chapter 5. 
John's worried about who's, how, who, who is going to sort out the world's history. He's told that the lion of the tribe of Judah will do it. He turns to see the lion, but he doesn't see the lion. He sees the lamb, the lamb of God, as if it had just been slain. The lion of Judah is the lamb of God. And by his death, he has seized control, as it were, of the universe and of the the running of the universe as the God-man. Well, here, here we have the same principle, the same principle that Mary Magdalene, you remember Mary Magdalene saw Jesus in the garden, but she didn't recognize Jesus until he spoke to her and she heard his voice. In chapter 13, the beast looked like a lamb, but spoke like a dragon. Well, here we have this sound that he hears, the roar of many waters reminding us of the voice of Jesus in chapter 1, the sound of loud thunder reminding us of the voice of God at Mount Sinai, the sound of harpists. Actually, it's all alliterated. It's basically, if I can translate it exactly, harpists harping on their harps, like the Holy Spirit who orchestrates the music of the church as we see in the book of Psalms. The music emanates from heaven, from the very presence of God. The singers are not the living creatures of the elders, nor are they God. Those living creatures and elders that appeared earlier in the book represent creation and the church. No, this song is being sung by angels, angels who are singing before the throne and before the living creatures and before the elders. These angels are not the beneficiaries of redemption. They have no need to be redeemed. But they're desperately interested in our redemption. This is what we read in Luke 15. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Or in Ephesians 3, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is now made manifest to the principalities and the powers, that is, the angels in the heavenly places. In fact, Peter says that the good news announced to us by the preaching of the gospel is of vital interest to the angels who long to look at these things. We want to understand these things. How do they come to understand it? They come to understand it as we gather in worship and we hear the Word of God preached. And so they, they give their praises along with us to God. Here the angels are leading the song. And here in this passage, it's the redeemed, the 144,000, that is the elect, still on earth who have scarcely grasped the song. We need to learn the song in our pilgrimage. It says no one can learn that song except the 144,000 who'd been redeemed from the earth. What does the learning take? It doesn't come naturally or without effort, but every sermon, every sacrament, every meditation... Every time you clear your mind and seek that you might think spiritually about the things of God, whether it's the incarnation or the passion, we're learning how to sing 
the new song. It's a song of the future, the song of the new creation. It's the harmony of the universe. As Robert Lowry once put it, above the tumult and the strife I hear its music ringing. It sounds an echo in my soul. How can I keep from singing? This new song celebrates a redemption that Christ has brought to us. A heavenly song, a heavenly city, a heavenly army. When we first met the 144,000, we found them enumerated by their tribes. Actually, it reflects a kind of military roll call. In First Chronicles chapters 4 to 7, you find that when Israel went to battle, each tribe had to contribute its number of soldiers to the conflict. So the very number brings us right back to the context of the chapter, which is this spiritual war. The, these chapters have been using messianic language and military imagery as well. We're reminded that King David, King David was both a soldier and a singer. Here the mustered troops, the army of the Lamb, are both soldiers and singers. Here is the church militant, the church in arms, engaged in the final battle with the powers of this present age. Jesus is not waiting to be attacked. He is on the attack. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, this is the background that is to the puzzling words of verse 4. But keep the background in mind. It's a bad translation, I have to say, of the, in the ESV. It is those who hope, who, sorry, who have not defiled themselves with women, <clears throat> for they are virgins. Actually, there are two groups of people in the text that are being referred to. <clears throat> and before I tell you what the, 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 this verse means in its context, I do have to pause for a moment and address the reaction that this verse very often produces in people's minds when the words are taken at their face value. At face value, these words are suggesting that celibacy is a good just as marriage is a good. That shouldn't surprise us, by the way. Our Lord himself spoke about celibacy as a good and as a way of life for some of his people. The Apostle Paul teaches clearly that both marriage and celibacy are goods. Marriage, of course, is a good, but marriage is not for everybody. I want to say that very clearly. Marriage is not for everybody. So don't be browbeaten into marriage. In, the, in our current evangelical climate, that can happen. I've known plenty of men who should never have married, ever. They made, uh, they made poor women's lives 
total misery. They should have got on with their career. They should have gone to the mission field on their own because, frankly, they were going to live as single men on the mission field. So I have the courage to go and do it as a single person. In popular evangelicalism, marriage is regarded as an ideal, but sometimes becomes an idol. It's described in various ways. I'm appalled by some of the literature being churned out by evangelical and even reformed people in these days. Marriage is a way for men to channel their lust and sexual energy. Really? What does that make wives then? Your home whore. That's what it makes wives. Yet men need, I'll say this to you, man. Marriage is not the way you handle your passions. You handle your passions before you get married. You get a handle on your sexual urges before you try and work them out within a marriage. When you get married, your business in getting married is to treat that woman the way Jesus treats his bride, the church with care and attention and reverence and awe and fear and wonder. To see that woman become great before God and to pour into her all your emotional and intellectual efforts. That's what marriage is about. It may very well be that some guys need to consider that celibacy is the way forward in their lives. Celibacy, whether intentional or circumstantial, is a way, can be a way of life that brings glory to God and good to the world. Marriage is a good. Let me be clear about that. Marriage is a good thing. It's invented by God. But it is not the highest good, and it is not for everyone. Celibacy is as much a righteous way to live your life. I mean, Jesus did it, for goodness sake, as anyone else. I had an aunt, Aunt Helena, one of the most beautiful women I've ever met in my life. And uh, she was engaged to be married, but God had called her to go and work in Argentina. She broke off her engagement. She went to work in Argentina. She's a hero to me. God had called her to do something. The, The guy who was a good guy was not called to do it. When that happens, you obey God, don't you? She did. God used her. And her nephew adored her. But coming back then to our verse, that was a little sideway thing there. Notice how I did that? Sometimes you have to do that in order to address things. We've addressed it. Coming back then to our verse, in Deuteronomy, when it's talking about the Holy War, 
it says that the soldiers are to abstain from having sexual relationships with their wives in times of war. Remember, this was a big issue with King David and Bathsheba. Remember what his plan was to get her husband back so that he would sleep with her? But the guy was on military service. He was on the front line. He came back and he said, I'm not, I, there's no way I'm doing that because that would break the law of God. It would break the law of God. That's the background to this picture here. It's describing holy war. Even this reference to celibacy is a symbol in this case just as fornication and uncleanness have to do with the idolatrous practices of the nations. The ceremonial purity of Deuteronomy was a natural symbol for the moral purity of the church from the corruptions of this age. It symbolizes the pure in heart. Like good soldiers, Jesus' people follow the Lamb. And there are two groups of people here. There are, there are those men who, because they're in active service, don't uh, pollute women. And then there are the virgins. Let me say this. The word virgin, as it's used here, is just the normal, common and garden Greek word for girls. For girls. So there's, there's the... the, the The Lord's army is comprised of women and men, of girls and boys. And they're both described here. Both of them follow the Lamb wherever He goes, wherever He goes to serve them. And they are those who have been redeemed as a kind of first fruits for God and the Lamb. That's the language of sacrifice. They offer their lives, and it opens a door to life for others. And here's the thing this says about these people that that live for him, for Jesus, who follow the Lamb, the imitation of the Lamb, the imitation of Christ, which is what our duty is here below. One of the wonderful pictures of the Christian life is uh, the imitation of the Lamb, the imitation of Christ. We don't think about that often enough. But the the feature of these people is that no lie has been found in their lives. In other words, they've not bought into the lie of the devil. They've not bought into the big lie of Antichrist or the big lie of the false prophet. They've kept away from that and they've kept focus on the truth, testifying to Jesus. And that's where we are, isn't it? That's what we are called to do. We're in the Lord's army. We're soldiers of the Lamb, soldiers of the cross. We lift high the royal banner. We call men and women to Christ. We live for Him, trying to imitate Jesus in our everyday lives. We try to do as a congregation to imitate Jesus in our worship of God. That's what we're called to. Let's live as soldiers of the Lamb. Let's not revert. We we need to stop watching some of these news channels that are firing you all up uh, about all kinds of things, every issue that you can imagine and ones you couldn't imagine until they became issues for you that are keeping you awake at night and that are absolutely torturing your families. You need to stop that stuff and give your mind to the things of God. You've got enough to do. Living for God in a world 
that's going down the tubes. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would today give us the power of your Holy Spirit to live gloriously for you. And we pray that you would build your church and that, Lord, we would together as a congregation become more focused on the things that unite us than the things that divide us. More focused, Lord, on him who loved us oh so well. We pray in his strong name. Amen.